Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. You know what I mean? It just doesn't compute, you know? The law is the law. Peter, this is in our hands. I mean, it really is. People were there. We will continue to raise our voices. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Go to Corker and in for PJ Coogan this morning. Now, we've got a busy show ahead for you today. One of the stories I want your thoughts on this morning. The fencing off the keys uh, this weekend. Uh, the Port of Cork said yesterday it's in the interest of public safety. And I know that there are many who will agree with this view, given the scenes we witnessed last weekend. But there are others who are deeply opposed to it. And I'll be speaking to one city councillor who feels it's definitely the wrong approach. I'll be chatting to him after 10. So give me your thoughts on that to 1850. 93969696 also the mother whose son has had his theory test cancelled five times he was offered the option of sitting the test in get this Carrick and Shannon in County Leitrim and change is something we all have to deal with in our lives I'll be chatting to the doctor who's written a book about how best to embrace change and that's coming up at around half 11 this morning but first a Cork TD took to his feet in the doll yesterday to share his first hand account of how maternity restrictions during the pandemic affected him and his partner. In a speech which was at times emotional, Donica O'Leara spoke about how he was unable to be by his partner Emer's side during an emergency appointment. Let's have a listen to what he said. Minister, just before Christmas, my partner Emer had an emergency appointment with the early pregnancy unit because she was bleeding. I waited outside by the car park, looking up at the early pregnancy unit waiting room window, as close as I could get. I'm glad to say everything was okay, but we, I tell you, Minister, we were worried. And if it was not, Emer would have had to face that appointment alone. She would have got that bad news alone, earth-shattering, devastating news, alone. And Minister, that's still the same today. If a couple in that situation went to any hospital worried about the same thing, Today, tomorrow, next week, the partner would stay outside the hospital door. That is an outrage. Whatever about a year ago, Minister, hospital staff were vaccinated. 
Increasingly pregnant women are vaccinated, and many partners will be before long, too, and that's welcome. Partners and expected mothers are almost always, not always, but almost always, coming from the same household, presenting the same COVID risk. There is no justification. Women in labour need support. Full stop. The WHO said so. The CMO said so. When a woman has been through all that, God knows how many hours the labour might have been. And when they need to rest and recuperate, the partner that can help them do that, even allow little things like a shower, little things like that, a rest, has to leave, has to go out the door. You need to stop dragging your heels on this, Minister, and force action, and stop presenting these minimal changes as enough. Women need their partners during all of labour, after birth, and at key appointments. Partners are not visitors, Minister, they're essential support. And Deputy O'Leary joins me now. Dodica, good morning to you. Good morning, Fiona, how are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. Uh, Donica, it was obviously a, quite a traumatic experience and I remember looking at the photograph of the time of you standing out in the car park. Uh, what prompted you to, to give this speech yesterday in the Dáil? Yeah, look, I suppose this is something I've been raising for, for a long time. I think I first raised it in September of last year and I, you know, that was before Emma was pregnant and... You know, I have been raising it reasonably regularly since then, but more recently I decided that we would tell our story um, because I just felt that it wasn't, you know, if there was anything I could do. And to some extent, I, uh, you know, I hesitated maybe about making it about me because, look, I'm not any more entitled than Emer isn't any more entitled than anyone else. But I did feel that if um, telling our story of what we had experienced helped the momentum to try and... Um, to try and ensure that partners did have access to their, uh, to this, that women did have access to their partners, mm-hmm. that they did have that support, then, then that I should do that uh, if that helped and if that helped keep up the momentum. Because, look, we're in a context now where the reopening society is almost two months in, and that's welcome. I think that's a really good thing. I'm really glad there's an all, another uh, range of businesses opening on Monday and then next month again. But at the same time, like you can you can go to a museum, you can go to a shopping centre uh, for Monday, you'll be able to go for a meal outside, all these things that are, you know, valuable and I welcome them. But, you know, a woman has to go through parts of labour still on her own. Uh, and that's against the advice of an awful lot of um important organisations, the World Health Organisation, you know, the Chief Medical Officer, and even the Tishik himself has said that there's no need for this, but the mm-hmm. government haven't haven't pushed this agenda enough, I don't think. And it has meant, like I do accept that, you know, at various stages there was a need for restrictions, but I think an awful lot of women and their partners have had to suffer these restrictions unnecessarily. And certainly, I suppose, my experience... You know, as I say, it's the same as so many other uh, men and women and Emer's experience is the same as so many others as well. Um, but And I don't know, on this show, um, you know, we have spoken to so many women who have had to go through all of those experiences by themselves and they've spoken about the trauma and the worry and the stress. But it must be equally as stressful for the partner to be outside waiting for a phone call and as, you know, in your case, looking up at the window waiting for information and to even, I mean, like dads nowadays just want to be so much a part of the whole experience. They want to be there for the scans in many cases. They want to be there for the entire labour so that they can help their partner and be there for for their, their child as well. No, definitely, Fiona. And like I've spoken to an awful lot of um, to an awful lot of people who you know have missed 
um, you know, big parts of the labour and they've missed being there for a while after the birth to support their partner and I come across stories of people who would have got bad news alone and you know when whatever about restrictions of time when the cases were high and when restrictions were going up like I do understand that I do understand that the hospitals had to be careful and that there was a clinical risk to be managed but at different stages like I mean last autumn uh, last Christmas and now when restrictions are being lifted I don't know how that can be justified especially now when vaccination is so widespread to say that there are women that have to wait until their labour is what they're calling active and strong labour like I mean you know like the start of labour in induction like these are not easy things to go through and having a partner there like you know I was looking at the, the, the Ireland South Hospital Group website that provides the guidelines for, for the hospitals here in Cork, Kerry and some of the surrounding counties. And, you know, it's talking about that, you know, our partners be asked kindly to leave after after birth. But the same website has a link to the to the Royal College of Midwives talking about, um, you know, that they believe that they it is, it is proven that it makes childbirth birth safer and it's in the interest of the welfare of the mother that the partner be there and look I want to be there for Emer I, I know that an awful lot of other men and women want to be there for their partners too um, and you know it is I, I, like I, I suppose you know it is important for the partner but it's more important for the mother it is you know it's it's and I, that is for me where the focus is primarily the other element of it is important but you know this is about support this is clinically beneficial this is you know the emotional support the practical support it makes a huge difference and uh, you know I think it is it is really really important it's it's not just um, it's not just that that it's a nice thing to to experience together or you know obviously in many circumstances it's traumatic but it's necessary and the WHO believes that it's necessary and an awful lot of our health services around the world believes that it's necessary the NHS even in the north you know, at the minute, you know, all appointments, a partner can be there and, um, you know, after birth, the partner can be there for the duration of labour, for all of it, um, a partner can be there. Like, it's not the same as visitors, and I understand restrictions on visitors too, but mm. a partner during birth and a partner at key appointments where you could get bad news, that's not a visitor. That's essential support as far as I'm concerned. I want to be that for Emer, and I know many others want to be for their partners too. And do you think that those maternity restrictions should be lifted right across the board or should they be in line with figures in each area? Like, you know, if the figures are high in an area that they can bring the restrictions in then? Or, or do you think that they should be just lifted right across? I think right across because I don't think the numbers anywhere in the country are enough to justify this given how important it is and given how, you know, society is reopening across the state. I'm not somebody who believes that, you know, you know, it can never be justified in very extreme circumstances, but we're like you know, like as we had maybe just after Christmas when the when the cases rose to astronomical level, and you had to manage that. Now within that, I think you know there has to be a balancing of all that too, and I think that you know you need to be facilitating support where it's where it's very necessary. But there's probably a balancing there, but we're not at that stage now. You know, hospital staff are vaccinated. Um, an awful lot of pregnant women are vaccinated too and increasingly the, the, the partners are going to be vaccinated. So whatever about 12 months ago, like there is, 
you know, when we were in a very difficult situation, I acknowledge that. And I acknowledge, like, look, the staff and the CMH, I've always found to be excellent. And I have no fault in relation to the, to the nurses and midwives and staff. Um, and I know that they're doing their best in very difficult circumstances. But there, there's no justification now when the cases are so low, when society is reopening and when so much vaccination is taking place. It's too important uh, and too many women uh, have had to suffer. Um, too many women are, are going through labour loan uh, and and too many partners are are being stopped and being able to offer them the support that they need that will that will help the birth and will help uh, the baby in the end. And how is Emer? Emer's okay. Yeah, um, look, it's a, I suppose I know it's a high risk pregnancy, so we're mm-hmm. being seen often, um, and we're getting very good care. I have to say, but Emer's Emer's good. Yeah, and I suppose we're expecting now in about seven weeks. So, um, look, yeah, all is going well, thankfully. Okay. And I'm very glad that you know when we were worried that time that it it didn't turn out to be worse, and I'm relieved. And I suppose the reason I got emotional mm-hmm. isn't necessarily what happened on that occasion. It's the thoughts of if something had happened and what that experience would have been like and what that experience was like for other people because look I know I've used my voice here it's got a higher profile it's got a bigger audience Mm. but I'm not special we're not special you know we're the same as anyone else and I want everyone to have this right and entitlement I want every mother to have this right and entitlement but I suppose I felt an obligation if it could help this campaign to, to use this opportunity to to try and keep the pressure on and keep the momentum on. And I know this will change at some stage, but, you know, I, I just hope it's not too long and that, you know, the fewer women and partners who have to experience this, the better. I know, like, we've spoken to so many women who have gone through those traumas of, you know, losing a baby or, you know, having a very complicated pregnancy and not having their partner by the, their side. And it's just heartbreaking to listen to their stories and to think that this is happening in our hospitals now. And I know that there are the concerns around public health, but, you know, if somebody is living with somebody, you can't, I can't really understand why they can't go into the hospital with them then as well, do you know? Exactly, yeah. Like, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, in the vast majority of cases, people, you know, offer the same COVID risk and now as I say it's in a con- context where everyone is vaccinated and look mine is very very far and Hemers is we're very very far from the, the worst story or the, the, mm. the most difficult story that has arisen um, you know there has been like many women would have received the you know the most heartbreaking news on their own because you know Sometimes maybe you might be have an appointment that's coming up, and you may have might have a sense that you know it could be a very serious appointment. But sometimes you can just go in for a routine scan, or sometimes you can go in for a routine appointment and get terrible news. You know, uh, and it's earth-shattering. And you know, like I mean, look, there's still something of a. Unfortunately, maybe it's being broken down a bit now. But there's a bit of a taboo about talking sometimes about um, miscarriage. But like I mean, it is. It, it is common um, and it can arise at any stage in the pregnancy and it can happen, you know, and you can learn about it, um, you know, at an appointment where you're not expecting to. And if you're on your own and then your your partner's in the car park, like, I mean, that's not, that's not how it should be. Um, so you need, I believe the partner needs to be there, but there's also during labour and after labour like I mean some of this is practical like mm. this isn't just about emotional support so a woman's been through a labour for many many hours and you know the baby's born and everyone's happy mm. and all the rest of it the mother is exhausted you know and they Absolutely. want to have a shower and they want to have a rest and I know the nurses and midwives 
will do their best to facilitate that. But they're run from pillar to post at the minute, like you know. Mm. So you know, if a partner's there, that mother can go for a rest. They can go for a shower. They can go to the bathroom without having to ring the bell. Like you know, the partner is mm. there to to keep an eye on the baby, and you know, it's it's really important that the mother can recuperate. Um, and when, if the partner has to go an hour after the baby's born, like then your ability to recuperate is, you know, it is diminished. Even though I know the nurses, midwives are doing their best, but like they have an awful lot to be doing um, and it's very difficult for them to meet all those needs. It is um, Donica, can I just ask you as well, um, just in, with regards to the Leaving Cert results, we found out yesterday that they're going to be uh, released on September 3rd, which is not giving students a lot of time to accept a college place. What's your own reaction to that? Yeah, look, I, uh, I'm disappointed, to be honest, as I repeated last year. Um, it's very stressful, you know, like, I mean, the written exams are starting next week and for students to have to be dealing with this is very worrying. I am hopeful and I'm going to be speaking for the Minister today to clarify whether this has been lined up for the CAO. I expect that when they announced this, they had done some work in ensuring with the CAO and the universities that that would work, but it probably means the third-level courses are starting late. But I suppose the people I'd be worried about and what we really need solutions to are people who are either studying in the north, in Britain or in Europe where, you know, we don't have as much access to those universities people might have placed in, I don't know, the Sorbonne or London or St. Andrews or where, wherever it is or maybe in the United States. And those university years might be starting on the 5th or 6th or 7th of September and uh, they'll be worried about those places now. So... Like, I think this should have been avoided. We have had a proposal and a solution to the even sort of difficulties this year on the table for a long time. Um, so I don't know why this is taking so long. But, you know, I suppose my focus now is on solutions and they're the categories I'm most worried about. I expect that this will probably mean that the college year will start later. Um, but, you know, these are the answers we're going to be looking for. I really regret, though, that it's happening at a time when students are very, very stressed. But... Look, I mean, I suppose if I can offer reassurance, it's that I and everyone else involved in education in Leinster House is going to be working on solutions, and I hope that we can find them. Uh, and I, I suppose I take the opportunity to wish all leaving students, students the best of luck next year or next week and the following week because uh, they've had a really difficult year, but they've borne it with great dignity and commitment. Uh, and uh, look, I hope it goes well for all of them. Yeah, like a Cork mother has been in touch with us here on the opinion line and she has said that uh, this year's leaving certs were last year's fifth years. Their education was neglected last year, understandably to an extent, to make sure the leaving certs of 2020 got their exams. Now with a week to go to the leaving cert, they learn their results are delayed and the government had a whole year with experience to prevent this happening. We know this makes for problems with particularly getting accommodation, but many other problems too. This is a mental health issue the government could have dealt with easily. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't understand why. Look, we're looking for explanations from the department as to why this happened. Is I find it very hard to justify. Um, I, you know, they had plenty of time. They knew what the solutions were. They experienced from last year, and you know, I have to say, the teachers and the schools kept up their end of the bargain and delivered on time. So this is with the department, and it is an ad- adding to the stress, but. Like, I'm going to be working to try and find solutions and I hope that we can find them, especially, like, as I say, I I, I believe we can find solutions for those studying here. Uh, it's people studying in other places. There's still a bit of work in that, too, mm. of course, but it's in other places uh, that we need to resolve as well. Dodigan, um, thanks very much for joining us on the Just on another story there, look, I mean, I, I know you're going to be talking there about the, the docs and the congregation of people yeah. and things like that at this point. Like, I, I, I do think, and I, I've raised this point with uh, the Tanshta 
uh, and who's the Minister for Enterprise. Like, I think at this point, when you look at the pros that were gathering last year, I think it would probably be sensible at this stage to, you know, there's no public health reason not to, to move the opening of outdoor dining from Monday to Friday, because mm. then you're dispersing the crowds into a variety of smaller locations, and I don't think you'll have the large gatherings like that. There's, I, like, I, I even, somebody who has support public health restrictions, but, you know, at this point in time, four days is going to make a difference. It, if anything, it will probably help make it easier to manage in my view. Okay, brilliant. Listen, thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. Welcome back. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on this Thursday morning. Now, uh, Liz got in touch with us here on the show, um, on the Opinion Line, and she has been telling us about her son's theory test, a theory driving test. Liz, good morning. Tell us exactly what got you so angry. Hi, Fiona. Um, well, first of all, this is going on since last October. Right. So we applied for the theory test. We got a date for January. Um, about three days before his test, that was cancelled due to lockdown. And then we got another date for February, which was again cancelled. We had one for April, May, and then we got one for the 23rd of July in Trinity. Okay. But he has a job got for the summer, provided that he has a provisional license. So I went online to see if I could bring the date forward. And to my excitement, I did. But I got the 11th of June in Carrigan Shannon, which is about three and a half hours drive from us. But mothers will do what mothers have to do. So <laughs> that was fine. And then yesterday morning, I received another email saying that that date was now cancelled. And they have put his date out to the 23rd of July at nine o'clock in Carrigan Channel. And why did they cancel it? Because they are saying that the government will only allow him run at a quarter capacity. Okay. And so why, are, why did they take the, the test in the first place? Why did they take the appointment in the first place? They said because it's an open online booking system, they can't shut it down in case anyone would want to make a cancellation. But they still shouldn't be allowing people then to change their dates if there's no chance of they ever getting it. Well, this is it. And like, there's no way of doing the test online or anything like that. You have to be in the centre. They, well, they did open a portal for online um, about a week or two ago. But that was completely booked out within 15 minutes, 20 minutes of going online. So I think it's meant to go online again on Friday. But the spaces are very limited and there's hundreds of thousands of people waiting for TV tests at the moment. And tell us about his job. Why does he need to get this test so urgently? Because he's going wrapping silage for the summer. Right. Um, So it's not just my son. It's people all over Ireland and contractors... And people going to work, they're all in the same boat. Yeah. I mean, like, we're 12 months in, and then they decide to put the theory test online last month. And if he doesn't get this job now, like, if he doesn't get his licence, he can't get the job, obviously. So what's no. he going to do for the summer? Well, he's going to be at home meeting with friends and doing things that normal people do. Like, the government have asked these people for the past 12 months to restrict their movements, don't be meeting with friends, don't be parenting. They took him out of school to restrict movements and now they won't give him a licence to go to work. So what are they going to do for the whole summer? Only meet and start moving from house to house. 
And like, obviously you're very angry about it and, and rightly so, you are his mum, but what's his reaction to it? Well, he, he's just sickened. Yeah. He's absolutely sickened because he, it's going on so long and he's put so much time into the theory test and then it's just gone a couple of days again before it's meant to happen. Yeah. And I mean, like the just... government aren't giving any, would say, down the line, they're still not giving any guarantees. Like, there's still no guarantee that he will sit his test on the 23rd of August, or July, sorry. Mm. So it could be pushed out again then to October It could be again. pushed out again. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, there is a massive backlog there as well at the minute, so they have to get through all of that. So it's just, it, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't. And it, it's just heartbreaking for every young person in the country. Like, I know they were all along, it's been essential workers and essential this. And the same for uh, sitting the driving test. It was only for essential workers. But your driving licence is essential to everyone. Yeah. Whether it's to get yourself to college or get yourself to work, everything is essential. And it does, it does seem crazy having to drive the whole way to Carrick and Shannon and County Leitrim to get the test, doesn't it? It does. And if I was to get a day, well, say, a location closer around Munster, mm. the nearest date I could get is October. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. Listen, Liz, thank you so much for getting in touch with us and sharing your story. And hopefully your son gets um, his test and you might let us know. You might keep in touch with us here on The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Quartz 96 FM. Welcome back. Now, this morning, uh, did you see the day, the Dear Gay documentary in RTE last night? We were reminded of so many of the stories that women in particular shared with Gay and the nation. There were stories of joy and many stories of sadness too. And for Ireland of the time, it provided many women a voice and sent out a message to so many that they were not alone. And one of the women who wrote to Gay was Catherine Corliss and she featured in the documentary last night. Catherine, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Fiona. Welcome to the Opinion Line, Catherine. Now, well, thank Catherine, you. Um, I watched the documentary myself and your letter was lovely uh, about summer. What prompted you to write to Gay in the first place? Well, I suppose um, for many years before that, uh, before I wrote the letter, I had been listening to Gay and I absolutely loved his way of talking and his way of, of talking to people and coming down to anyone's level, level. He could talk to the Archbishop and next thing he talked to a housewife like myself and he could he could accommodate anybody. And I was just intrigued by him all those years. And uh, I suppose I was intrigued by my, my own, our own children as well, you know, because uh, they loved the outdoors and uh, I used to watch them playing and inventing things and just inventing games. And I thought it was lovely and uh, I suppose I just put the two and two together. I'd been listening to every type of letter that went into Gay. And I just thought he'd have humorous ones and sad ones. And I, t- I took the humorous uh, 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 idea at that time and just put a few lines together. And I was, it, it meant a lot at that time, back in the 19, early 1990s, to have your letter read out on national radio. So uh, that, that's, that's what prompted me. And when you heard him reading out your letter, what was your reaction? Well, at the time, at the, uh, the, the kids were just going out to school and I just called them back and uh, it was the first letter out in the morning at half nine. And uh, I just, uh, I, uh, of course, it meant an awful lot of the time and I was delighted. And not only did Gay read letters, he just, he, wrote, he, was, he had a way of reading the letter as, as 
as the person wrote it. Mm. And, you know, he, he was he was just uh, gifted at that and uh, it just really meant an awful lot. And Catherine, the letters to Gay also allowed so many women to share their stories of an Ireland that shamed women in so many ways, didn't it? Well, absolutely. Uh, over the years, right up to the time he retired, he definitely gave a voice to women because, well, even in my own case from the west of Ireland, um, a lot of things were taboo in families and mm. he just didn't talk about them and you would rarely talk to each other about things and uh, you just knew what you should be talking about and what you shouldn't, influenced heavily, of course, by the church. And uh, you were just careful of what you said because uh, even back at that time, you, you know, a letter even to the local paper if you were uh, instigating that uh, the, the, the church wasn't doing their job right and if, if you spoke out against them, you were very, very lucky indeed at the time to get it into a local paper. So uh, the influence of, of the religious was very heavy at the time. And I mean, here was Gay on national radio. He had no taboos about anything. Mm. And he began talking about things first before the letters started to come in. He'd talk about any issue under the sun and he would say what was right and wrong. And I suppose what I gathered from him was the truth. He just told the truth of the matter and he didn't care what people thought or said about him. And I I think I I was more than likely heavily influenced. It's only when I look back, I would have been influenced by Gay's uh, openness Mm. and his courage and you know he just said any, anything and everything but it was always the truth you see he never said anything that he couldn't back and I think I gathered that from him oh, What really struck me when I was watching it last night was that like I was I was a child when um, yeah, when yeah. it uh, when it went out but um, you know it was that image of, of women just you know that the men were out at work and the women were all just yeah. at home there listening right. to gay and somebody yeah. said in the documentary last night that when the husband or whatever came home and they were able to say to him well, Gay said this, and it, yeah. it kind of gave women permission to talk about things, as you oh, said, absolutely. that were completely well, taboo. I, I, I suppose I, 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 I could echo that as well, because uh, you know, because it, it, it would stick in your mind all day. Something mm. he, he'd come out with something, and would be, you know, gosh, you know, you would say he said that, and and uh, I know he <laughs> he got a lot of uh, slack from from various uh, corners mm. for saying things, and but he said them anyway, and uh, it, it, I mean he definitely changed Ireland and he would definitely give women a platform there's no doubt about that Do you think that he gave women you said that he gave them a platform do you think that he gave them courage to speak out and become a stronger person? Well absolutely uh, especially especially when um, the letters became very prominent uh, it, it was a therapy for women just to write down and, and Gay was someone you could you could go to. I mean, you put down all the problems on paper and that in itself was a therapy for them. But then to hear Gay reading it out and not alone reading it, but mm-hmm. uh, agreeing with them and uh, um, sort of maybe giving a bit of advice to them and support. I think support was a big thing. They had the support of Gay in, in all the problems and he seemed to understand and, and get into the minds and hearts of people. He had that gift. And and definitely, definitely. Um, well, then, as regards the mother and baby homes, when a lot of letters uh, came in about that, and mm. uh, unfortunately, the uh, producers of the show did tell me at the time that they had enough material for two hours wow. of the program, but the only they were only they were saved down to an hour. Mm. And there was a few letters that they told me about as regards mother and baby homes and the religious and the attitude of the church and the nuns. And unfortunately, they didn't make the program. But um, they should should definitely do another programme just with letters, just to show what Ireland was like and to remind people again what Ireland was like in the in the sixties, seventies, eighties.
And little did we know what would what would come after those letters about the mother and baby homes and the scandals that were to follow that we're still hearing about now. Yeah, well, well, that's right. It it, it definitely it definitely opened up that. Well, especially very very poignant was uh, Christine Buckley, Mm. and uh, to have her on and and to you know to interview her and to let her, I think she would be the first person really that opens doors as well for a lot of, of mothers. And uh, just and for Gay to give her that platform, I think that was really the the, the pivotal point of, of of the whole mother and baby home issue. Because, um, well, the likes of myself, I wouldn't have known anything about it. Mm. At, you know, until it started opening doors for me as well. And and I suppose it just it did build up build up this uh, need in me to expose as best I could what really went on at that time. There were remarkable stories from remarkable women. And Catherine, can I ask you one last question? Did you make a copy of your letter? Uh, no, no, I never <laughs> did at the time. I didn't, but it it, it was, a, I don't know, it, it was just a lovely, lovely uh, programme, the way they put it together. And yeah. I, I couldn't believe that they actually had the letter, not just the recording, but they, they actually kept boxes and boxes of letters. And, and fair play to ORT for doing that, because mm. uh, if, I could, if I could just if I could just mention one letter, if you have time, that's yeah. really struck me that unfortunately didn't make it to the programme. It was about, no, the woman didn't give her name, but she was a nurse and she was a children's nurse and she was between jobs, as she said. Now, this was in the uh, 1970s and she was between jobs and uh, she said, uh, someone suggested that uh, a mother and baby home in Dublin, uh, that that the sisters were looking for um, a, a nurse at the time. And so she said she'd apply for that and she went in and uh, she was a nun brought her in and uh, asked her to stand in the corridor, which she did. And while she was standing there, she said she saw a nun beating all flying coming down the corridor at a fast rate. And she said the nun gave her a look uh, like a summons. Now, I thought that was a great line. And she went into the kitchen. And uh, she overheard the nun speaking in the kitchen because she was just more or less outside the door. And she heard the nun saying to someone in the kitchen, oh, there's another slut out there in the corridor. So uh, she told that to Gay. And she said when the other nun came to, uh, you know, to do the interview, she said, I told the, I told that nun what to do with her job. She couldn't, she wouldn't go wow. ahead, even though she needed a job. She, she couldn't work in an atmosphere like that. Yeah. So uh, I, I was intrigued with that. Absolutely. So fair play to that woman. And I mean, Gay would have read that out as well. So yeah. back, back in that time, it was something else. Brilliant, brilliant. uh, I know. Fantastic. Listen, Catherine, thank you so much for taking our call this morning. We really do appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with us about any of the topics today, you can contact us on 1850-715-996 or text 0833-969696. Now, our next guest is um, Eva MacDonald. It's a question that comes up time and time again. Should the voting age be lowered to 16? And Eva is a member of the Irish Secondary Students' Union and she has written a piece for The Echo calling for just that and I wanted to have a chat with her about it. Eva, good morning to you. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. Uh, Eva, why why did you write this piece? Well, the ISFU has been working on the Vote at 16 issue for the last couple of months. It's been really important to us. You know, of course, all of us involved in the Students' Union have really seen the power of young people and how when they work together, they can really make political change. Mm. You know, in terms of the Leaving Cert, in terms of organisations like Fridays for Future, campaigning for climate justice. And despite all the work these, you know, 16 and 17 year olds are doing, they still don't have their most basic democratic right to vote. It's disappointing, really. 
And do you think that, I mean, obviously yourself and your uh, your colleagues and your peers are really interested in politics, but do you think it's something that grabs the attention of all 16-year-olds or the majority of 16-year-olds? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because of the right of, right of social media and social media activism to extent, you know, 16 and 17-year-olds are really politically aware these days. I know especially around um, the Israel-Palestine conflict, mm. there's been a huge amount of... Um, people educating themselves on the issue and people putting forward their opinions on social media. Now, while there are issues with social media in terms of like misinformation, it's we're really seeing young people beginning to care about these issues. And if we allow them to vote, they're going to become even more interested in politics. We're creating a future generation of leaders and a future generation of truly engaged voters. Do you think that if young people of the age of 16 um, had the vote that it would make a difference to the way um, or or to the outcome of our elections? Do you think that we'd see a completely different kind of government? Well, obviously not completely different because, you know, there just aren't enough 16 and 17 year olds to do that. But Mm. I think we definitely see a rise in certain parties that, you know, cater to the issues that young people care about in terms of, I know I've mentioned like climate justice education as well. Ireland spends very little on education compared per capita compared with the other OCED countries. And part of that's because of the prime, you know, beneficiaries of education, they can't vote. They can't really make their voice heard. By giving them the vote, it essentially forces politicians to listen to what young people want. And that can only be a good thing. And what would you say to those people who say that 16-year-old isn't mature enough to vote? You know, it's kind of unfortunate to hear that when you look at what 16 year olds have done for this country Mm. how hard so many of them work to try and improve the society and I don't mean on you know a student's union level like look at student councils for example like even at the base there are 16 year olds all over the country working hard to just improve things on a local level and I think you can't definitively cut off at 16 you know you're immature I know there's People have, you know, mentioned to me they'd be worried about 16-year-olds voting for joke candidates, say. Yeah. And while I understand that, you know, plenty of adults have also voted for joke candidates. Yeah, yeah, they do indeed. <laughs> or they might just look at it and, you know, they don't know who's even in their in their constituency and they're just putting mm-hmm. numbers beside a face that they might like, you know. I mean, it's yeah. it's um, there is merit in what you're saying there. And do you think, Eva, that there's enough politics being taught in schools? Do we need to have a look at that issue? Oh, absolutely. That kind of goes hand in hand with Vote at 16. You know, I think we have CSPE in place for junior cycle, which is great, but um, it's not re- the way the curriculum is structured means it isn't usually taken seriously by students. Mm. And it often very much depends on the teacher. And, you know, well, a lot of them are brilliant and that's great. But um, I think what would be really important is, you know, ensuring that students know, first of all, how to register to vote is important, Mm. Um, how to make informed political decisions. I think that really needs to be introduced into CSPE instead of just learning off kind of a list of dates as to when certain laws were brought in. And then at leading cert, we have politics and society, which I don't take it myself, unfortunately, but I've heard it's a brilliant subject. Mm. But it's not available in all schools yet, which is a pity. And there's also the issue that it is a choice subject, you know, whereas political education should be available to all. Do you think, like, we're always trying to get younger people to go into politics because, you know, the issues that you mentioned there earlier in the interview are maybe issues that are not as concerning or of concern to um, older people. So do you think that having younger people allowed to vote might encourage younger people to actually go into politics in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of younger people as well will probably more identify maybe a bit more with younger candidates and it'll make people feel, you know, 
younger people feel that they have a chance to actually win, or if not win, at least gain the experience of going into politics. Mm. Um, when you feel like there's a way to change the issues you care about, you're more likely to get involved with politics and more likely to improve it. Is politics something that yourself and your friends talk about a lot? Yeah, yeah, we'd be. <laughs> we talk about politics a good bit, yeah. And where where did your love for politics come from? Like, are you from a family that talks about politics a lot or is it just something that really interests you? Yeah, it, I, I mean, my family would talk about it a good bit. I've always been really into, you know, I've been a big bookworm always, so I've kind of discovered it from there. Yeah. And also, once again, social media, it, you know, obviously with the caveat that you have to check all your sources, but it gives you access to such a wide range of opinions that it kind of prevents your political views. Well, if you, you have to, you know, work at this, but make sure your political views don't become you know, an echo chamber. Yeah. It allows you to see things from different perspectives. And would you be interested in going into politics yourself? Yeah, maybe. We'll <laughs> see. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you're you're 16 now, are you? Uh, no, I'm 18, actually. Oh, you're 18. Okay. So you will be able to vote now the next time around. Yes. Looking <laughs> yeah. forward to it. And like, what do you say to people who are like, you know, 16, 17 coming up behind you? Like, what do you say to them to encourage them to become more politically aware and to become more interested in politics? Well, I'd say, first of all, get involved with the ISSU. You know, your local regional officers, I'm sure, would be delighted to take any emails you have. Um, and of course, all the regional officers are on our website. We also have working groups. So if there's an issue that really interests you, you can get involved in that. Mm. And I think, you know, find what interests you about politics. You know, if you, it can be something as small as like a pothole on your road and get in touch with your local councillor and ask them, you know, what are you going to do about this? Well, politely, of course. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's something bigger. Maybe, you know, you're terrified about the possibly oncoming um, ecological crisis. Yeah. Or you can join, you know, maybe that's what you're interested in. Find what you care about and work to make a difference. Brilliant, Eva. Listen, thanks so much for getting in touch with us on the Opinion Line this morning. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that 16-year-olds are mature enough to vote? Do you think that the voting age should be reduced to 16? Let us know, 1850-715-996 or 0833-969696. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back to Thursday's Opinion Line. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan today. Now, we've had some very differing opinions coming in on our interview with Donica O'Leary on maternity restrictions. Kate got in touch to say another thing that people do not think about is the absence of a partner puts the, press, the nurses under more pressure. You need the support and even someone to abuse, if we're to be honest. And I'd say the nurses are finding all this very stressful. Meanwhile, another caller got in touch to say, yes, it is terrible he had to go through that experience and I feel truly awful for him but the restrictions are there to prevent other couples going through even worse heartbreak. Does the media not understand this virus is particularly dangerous to babies and babies in the womb? Caller never thought she would say this but really it's time to stop all this pandering and if you give her a choice between the attitude she's hearing all over the radio and TV now and the old days she thinks she would probably be better off with the old days. What are your own views on that or anything else that you want to get in touch with us? Contact 1850 715 or 08 3396 and the opinion line at 96fm.ie.
Now, uh, on Sunday just gone, it was World MS Day. But what's it like living with MS? Claire Kelleher is a young woman from Bandon and she was diagnosed six years ago and a lot has happened since there. Since then, Claire, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show for a chat with me this morning. Hi, Fiona. Thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate that. Uh, no problem. No problem at all. Uh, glad to take you on. Now, Claire, first of all, can you just take us back to when you were first diagnosed six years ago? What was your reaction like to that news? Um, well, my reaction at this time, I suppose, wasn't really much because I didn't understand what was happening. <laughs> um, I had brain fog was one of my biggest things. So it's kind of like everything was just happening at me. I didn't really kind of fully comprehend um, what this meant, what MS really was. Um, I had a vague notion, you know, from doing the readathon when I was a kid and things like that. Yeah. Um, but I think the impact was much worse on my family um, because they were seeing it from the outside, you know. Um, so, so how it all started, I, I was off doing the Camino with my hu- my husband now, my boyfriend at the time. Yeah. And um, I started um, getting pain at the back of my eyes. Um, so we cut that all short, uh, got home. And then um, if somebody touched my leg in a comforting gesture, you know, mm. it actually felt like a hot iron. And then Fiona, I had like tinglings down one half of my body. I mean, like, you know, the right hand side kind yeah. of thing, the whole right hand side. My scalp was like so itchy that like with the tingles, do you know, that um, I, I actually said to my doctor, I'm going to shave my hair. That's the only thing for it. Yeah. Luckily, he wouldn't he wouldn't let me. He said that that won't help. Um, but, I, you know, it, just, it wasn't my body. I had no idea what was going on with me I, and nothing felt right. But the biggest thing, the pain behind my eyes, as that kind of grew, um, my vision went completely in my left eye. I couldn't see a thing. Um so so I was just kind of being led around to all these different appointments and trying mm. to figure it out. Um, but as I say, like, you know, I was with the brain fog, um, it was just all happening at me. It, and it what age were you, Claire, at the time? Um, I was 26, 27. Uh, so that must have been really you know. scary at that age to have like what you described as the brain fog and not being able to see and not even knowing what was happening to you. Yes, very, very scary. Um, it, it, it's it's just kind of the unknown, the uncertainty, like, you know, mm. what's going on. Um, but, and, and as well, like at the time, you know, I just finished my master's, I was climbing the career ladder, you know, <laughs> and work yeah. was the most important thing. I wanted to be the best at everything. And then all of a sudden I couldn't work. And, you know, every time I, I, I went back to work, I ended up back in hospital again. Um, so, yeah, it's super scary because, Oh, I, I I had no control, um, but a it, but it, I think for me the main thing was like the support I had, um, you know, m- my husband, my my family, my friends, all kind of rallied around me and like you know, we'll help you with this, we'll do this with you, and as well, um, like MS Ireland. So um, when I had my official diagnosis, I didn't know what to say. I rang them up and I said I'd like to register my interest in MS. <laughs> 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 you know, I didn't know what to say. Um, and, and how and long they, did it they, take they, to get the diagnosis? So for a lot of people, it can take years. It can take years because the MS symptoms can sometimes be so vague yeah. that, you know, nobody wants to say MS. No doctor <laughs> wants to look at you and say, you have MS. Yeah. Um, but I was lucky that, I was lucky. Um, for me, it, it was a bundle of symptoms came all at once. Yeah. Um, so So it was literally... Um, big bad relapse that like bump 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 bump. They got an MRI for me. My, my neurologist is fantastic, and um, they, with that they were able to see that there was demyelination mm. happening in my brain, and they were able to say, okay, boom, MS. 
here's how we're going to address it. We're going to try these meds, get you back up and running, you know. And like, you know, you were saying there that you were like looking forward to going back to work. You mentioned that you had a boyfriend who's now your husband. So like yeah. once you got over the diagnosis, were you able to try and get back to a normalish life? Um, so it's, it's totally different for everyone. Mm. Um, some people I know at the same time as diagnosis, they they keep working through and not a problem, no disruption. Do you know? Um, some people major disruption. So it's completely different for everyone. For me, um, the first year anyway, I kept trying to go back to work, and every time I had massive relapses, end up back in the hospital for months. And um, it turns out like. Every medication that I tried, there there are so many different medications out there nowadays. Mm. Everyone that I tried, I, I said to them, I'm terrified of needles. So <laughs> they gave me all the pills first, you know, the different tablets that you can take. Yeah. And um, I tried every single one of them, my body rejected. I had a really, really rare side effect. Um, uh, so I, I had to come off each one of those. Um, so it took me um, about a year of being in and out before I finally found the right medication for me, which unfortunately was a needle. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. So I used to, I used to inject myself three times a week. Oh. But you know what? I'm I'm over it now. Like, I still don't like it. Yeah. Even when I went for my COVID vaccine, I was like, no, I don't, I'm not going to look. And are you back at work now or have you found a job or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so so what I did was I, I actually took a few years off work back then um, and I, I, I said, like, you know, I need to find something that I can do from home, from, from the bedroom if I need to. Mm. So I did, um, with the Cork's Chambers, um, I did a, a, a mar- marketing, digital marketing course. It was just, you know, um, eight days over, over the space of a couple of months. Um, and with that, I was able to get um, work experience and um, with a photographer, and it was absolutely fantastic down in Kinsale. And I was working there for a few years. And then finally, you know, after uh, two, three years um, of like very, very part time, uh, I said, like, you know, we, we just got married. Um, we, we wanted to get a mortgage. So I was like, we're going to need a second salary. Yeah. Um, so I, I went, um, I, did, I did my first ever job interview since MS. And I, I sat in and I said, um, I, I just came out, you know, it just came out. I said, I have multiple sclerosis. And I, I don't know, um, she asked something about whatever. And then it turned out that she was like, okay, so great. That's how you've dealt with stress in the past. <laughs> and, you know, she actually took it as, that's what happened to you. Here's yeah. how you dealt with it. And yeah, that's great. So so she turned into the puzzle. I was like, okay, whew, that's great. Um and then a little while later, um, you know, last year, sorry, two years ago now, two years ago, I landed the job of my dreams. And again, I put my cards on the table, thanks. <laughs> I said, like, you know, this is me. I have multiple sclerosis. There might be days where I have to work from home or, or I'm just I'm just too tired. I'm not going to do anything, yeah. you know. And they were like, hey, yeah, not a bother. You know, here you go. And honestly, the best job ever. Like even before COVID, I could work from home whenever I needed to. Um, the great team. I can bring my dog into the office. You and I swear to gosh, before COVID, <laughs> my doggy, um, he sat on on my desk and he'd come into meetings with us. It was Brilliant. gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. And we have like computer games and everything and beanbags. It's the best job ever. So do you think, Claire, that because like I know that MS sometimes can be that like hidden disease, but do you think that being really upfront about it has has helped you to get to the stage in life where you're at. Absolutely, that's for me. That's my journey. Yeah. Um. But for me, I, I, I mean, I'm not really 
able to um, keep secrets because, like, you know, my uh, my memory is so shocking <laughs> that yeah. I can't remember who I've told what. So it's like, hello world, <laughs> just tell everyone because I'm going to forget otherwise. <laughs> and Claire, um, you mentioned there, you know, you, you found your dream job, but um, uh, uh, you also had another uh, amazing achievement there not that long ago where you had a little baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, last night. Um, so he just turned a year old and I have a little son, the best thing in the whole world. Oh my gosh, she's gorgeous! Um, so that was that was kind of a big decision for us. You know, we were married three years before. It was like okay, okay, okay. Mm. Um, because I'd known, like, when you do research on MS, you come across lots of scary things. Mm. Um, but I'd we, I'd always wanted a kid. Like you know, we both wanted a baby. Um, but I read that like some some horror stories about after. Um, giving birth, sometimes you can have a big bad relapse, or some people I know were actually diagnosed for the first time after giving birth. Yeah. Um, so yes, there was a risk to it, but at the same time, you can't live worrying about what if, because I mean, it's kind of the same for everyone, Fiona. Do you know, mm. any one of us could walk down the street and anything could happen. Yeah. Um, you kind of got to just live your life. And um, so I'm looking for most people, for the majority of people, throughout your pregnancy, your MS symptoms actually all go down like they, they you know, um, they kind of disappear. Mm. And um, yeah, so, so, you know, I didn't even notice MS for the majority of the pregnancy. Um, and now, like, I'm still partially breastfeeding, so I still have the baby's immunity. Yeah. It's totally symbiosis and um, like so I still haven't had any any major effects my last MRI was all clear thank god no, no new lesions or anything yeah so um, for me I, honestly and even if, if something had happened like you know if the MS had bit me in the tuchus yeah. I mean honestly I wouldn't change anything for the world it this is the best decision I've ever made. This kid is like the best thing that's ever happened to my life, you know. And he was recently christened, but it was a very special type of christening, wasn't it? Because he wasn't yeah. the only baby getting christened at the time. <laughs> Super duper special. Um, so it was just Tuesday, just gone. Yeah. Um, so Sam was born in May and I have a little niece <laughs> um, she was born two months after Sam, but they live in the UK, so I, had, I, I hadn't met her. I didn't imagine you like someone you love so much and you'd never actually met them. Yeah. <laughs> um so that was uh, so so finally last um last week they were able to come over. They did their their uh, they had the PCR test yeah. five days and then another PCR test and then I was able to hold my little niece <laughs> and the two babies got christened together and you know for my mum and dad they're the first grandparents like so, so and like you know it's just absolutely amazing <laughs> it's gorgeous like, and you were you were mum and godmother then as well <laughs> yeah so it was really funny and um, so my brother was also father and godfather um, and, and so I have two brothers uh, the other brother was a godfather as well to, to to, to my little niece so we kept swapping places it was like okay godparents here and now parents are up so we just doing a little dance around the altar it's so funny the priest was super chill about it it was great fun it was great fun brilliant brilliant and uh, Claire there's a caller after contacting us here on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM and they wanted to know were you diagnosed with fibromyalgia before MS I have heard it is often classed that wrongly until um, until they investigated and uh, was that your situation or no no i was never uh it's uh, fibromyalgia wasn't even investigated for me right but i have come across that quite a bit where a lot of people are kind of asking online do you know could this be fibromyalgia could it be ms um 
But no, no, I was lucky. Like everything was very, very clear for me. And mm. I had had an MRI um, a year beforehand um, for my back. And so they, they, there was no activity in my brain then. But once the MS came, boom, they saw the lesions. They knew it was MS. Mm. So I was lucky that it was so clear. For a lot of people, it's a long journey to diagnosis. And they try a lot of different things. I mean, also Lyme's disease gets mixed up for MS quite a bit. Right. You know, because a lot of the symptoms... Um, are things that people get, you know, every day. I mean, you know, I'm not the only one who gets brain fog. <laughs> you don't need MS to get to be, yeah. like, you know, confused or, or, or forgetful memory. Um, I mean, you know, the muscle spasms can sometimes happen without MS. I mean, you, you hear all the things about about MS and you think, oh, no, worst case, uh, you know. And it's not actually, you know, it might not be MS. Mm. It, it might be just normal, you know, and it can go away. And even if it is MS, you know, nowadays the prognosis is totally different to what it was um, 20 years ago. I mean, so many treatments, early intervention makes a huge difference. Um, and, you know, just the support network around you, there, there's so much more that you can do. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm not worried about my future. I'm not, you know, but I do know a lot of people who've had like a much tougher journey with MS than yeah. I had. Um, and like they're the best people in the whole wide world, you know. Um, and I'm lucky to have all these MS friends. I'm really grateful for them. Yeah. Um, but for, for for me, honestly, it, it hasn't been the worst thing. It's actually been almost a blessing because it's made me slow down and appreciate what's really important for life. You know, for me. Um, yeah. And it got me my baby. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you, Claire, for sharing your story. It's really uplifting and it's lovely to hear somebody who did get that diagnosis and who is being so positive in life and, uh, you know, being able to, to enjoy the things, as you say, like, you know, the job, the husband, the baby and appreciating the small things. So, listen, thanks very much for talking to us this morning. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Quartz 96 FM. Welcome back. Um, We've had some reaction to Liz's story about her son's theory test and how it had been put back five times and she has to probably drive him to Carrick and Shannon to get the test. One person has been in touch to say, over a year my daughter is waiting for a theory test. It was cancelled five times. She couldn't get one online. Another listener on WhatsApp, 0833969696. My daughter has similar story, three times cancelled for y'all, now offered Clonmel. Keep your comments coming in to us, 1850-715-996 or 0833969696. Now, the bank holiday weekend is just 48 hours away and chances are, if the weather is good, large crowds will gather again in beauty spots across the city. But one area that we won't see those crowds gather will be along the quays in the port of Cork. Now they issued a press statement to us here on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM confirming that there will be gates put up or a fence put up on the port of Cork and this is what they've said. Following recent large public gatherings at the city quays, the port of Cork has decided in the interest of public safety and to be able to accommodate the port's commercial shipping traffic in a safe and efficient manner. The port will fence off sections of the quay walls or off the city keys, excuse me. The Port of Cork will fence off the following areas around any berthed commercial vehicles or vessels, around any plant or port equipment generally stored on the quayside and around cargo stored on the quays. So it's not everywhere, it's just those three areas. Fencing will be erected this week ahead of the June Bank Holiday weekend and remain in place until further notice. There are health and safety risks associated with large public gatherings on the quays and the public are advised not to congregate in this area. Now, 
one person who thinks that this is the wrong approach is Green Party councillor Dan Boyle and he took to Twitter um, to, to voice those concerns that he has around it and he's joining me now. Dan, good morning. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good morning, Fiona. So, Dan, uh, you think this is the wrong approach. What do you mean by that? Well, I send, it sends out a signal uh, that uh, the, the use of the keys uh, by the public is not to be welcomed. And this goes against uh, a lot of the planning we've been doing over the last uh, number of decades that the uh, Port of Cork uh, intends moving all of its activities to Ring of Skiddy. Uh, uh, and uh, in, in recent years, we've seen the uh, those, those particular key sites being used for festivals, for concerts, uh, and uh, it's been a general opening up. Uh, and now, uh, especially in a post-COVID situation where there's been a lot of pent-up pent demand for, for people to meet each other and, and be outside again, uh, one of the most open spaces uh, in the city centre area is being closed off and uh, I think that sends out all the wrong signals. But Dan, do you think that there's a difference between an organised event and just loads of people gathering there? I mean, like the Port of Cork are concerned, they say, about health and safety risks. So do you think that it's unwise to to have large crowds like that in an uncontrolled setting, you know, rather than have, like, if there's a festival where you'd have different tents set up and maybe barriers um, around certain areas there, like, you know, where they have certain cargo stored on the quays or, you know, just the open walls there where people could easily fall into the river? Or into the sea. Well, I, I, I think, of course, you have to take health and safety into account uh, for any event, whether it's uh, fully supervised or, or partially supervised or not supervised at all. But we've had a policy of, of trying to make the river more usable to the people of the city. The recent works on Union Quay, for instance, uh, which is uh, making more pedestrianised uh, parklets being put in. <coughs> sorry, <coughs> parklets being put in place uh, and encouraging use of the key side uh, and and the same is true of the open keys this fear of people falling into rivers mm. is, is a kind of a, an over paternalistic way of looking at things almost a nanny way of looking at it um 
open key sites are, are the norm in many European cities and, and they're encouraged and they're celebrated. Uh, so what we should be doing is, uh, of course, uh, encouraging be- best behaviour when people do meet and congregate. <coughs> Sorry. You're OK. Uh, I'm at my cup of tea, I think, has gone down the wrong way. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we, we should also be encouraging people to do that meeting and congregating. Uh, and the Port of Cork, while it's a semi-state company and it has commercial operations, it is, uh, it is a public entity. And I think it has a responsibility uh, towards uh, meeting public demand and, and providing public space. And, and what's being done now, particularly at a time when such space is so badly needed and we want to encourage people to encourage to be outdoors again, is not the right way of going about it. And Dan, just with regards then to the um, the public health arguments with regards to COVID and large crowds gathering, and we know that the CMO, Dr. Tony Holohan, came out last weekend and criticised what was happening in Dublin, um, and we saw large crowds here in Cork gathering on the quays. Like, do you ex- do you not accept that there is um, concerns around public health at the minute with large cr- crowds gathering like that? I think in terms of public education, we, we should encourage or dis, uh, discourage large-scale congregating, uh, but we also have to anticipate that it's going to happen to a, a greater and greater extent because the more we open up, the more uh, likelihood that people are going to meet meeting in, in large numbers. We do know outdoors is better than indoors, and certainly uh, we, we haven't reached the, the uh, stage yet where we're encouraging people to be meet indoors in large numbers. So uh, part of the process has to be uh, that we have to accept to a certain extent there will be congregating. Um, I, I think part of it is going to be removed when, when there is access either outdoors and indoors to, to pubs and restaurants around the city. Mm. But, but we, we've seen in places like the Lock where, where there was uh, a, an initial outburst uh, of enthusiasm and, and uh, quite a lot of antisocial activity as a result of it. But when certain measures are taken, uh, removing access uh, in particular places, uh, you'll find that people settle down to particular numbers. And and, and certainly there are a large number of people uh, enjoying facilities like the lock now, but nothing like what we've seen in recent weeks. And the behaviour is far different. It's being enjoyed in the public way that it should be. I I, I suspect that behaviour is what we're finding in... in, um, Kennedy Key as well. Mm. Large numbers, but well behaved uh, and practicing a, a certain amount of social distancing as well. Okay, Dennis, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. After the break, the author who says nature is the best playground for our kids. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Courts 96 FM. Gillian. Powell has written a book called Thrive Outdoor Nature Activities for Children and Families and Gillian is joining me on the line now this morning to talk to me a little bit about her book. Gillian, good morning. Good morning, Fiona, and it's lovely to be with you all this morning. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Now, Gillian, just tell me a little bit about this book. Well, basically, what we've found in research is, and what everybody knows from this pandemic, is that children have an innate connection with nature and that everything is better outside. So what I wanted to do with Thrive Outdoor Summer Nature Activities for Children and Families is to kind of provide a little inspiration. I think sometimes everybody gets outside and then you wonder, what will we do? Or children say, I'm bored. So these easy-to-do activities, I found in my experience of 32 years in early years education, have engaged children. You know, they... Um, I want to kind of reassure parents that 
outdoor is an important place to to uh, you know have have opportunities to be creative and mm. imaginative. For like example, what type? Yeah, like what what kind of things are you talking about? What kind of things are in the book? Uh, for example, uh, something like painting stones or uh, talking stones. I think it's even easier. I don't know if you've ever done done that in your life. Yeah, but yeah, you haven't lived unless you painted a stone. So. Uh, the, obviously in Ireland you need to have the right clothes on and make sure you bring your all weather gear but children love that too and a treasure bag so on your treasure bag you collect a couple of stones and children can have hours of fun painting that stone or, or talking the stone and then parents maybe could link that to a story they're reading yeah. and children could create a little character on the stone and play out that story for hours so it's simple activities like that that I've seen over the years have engaged children and sparked their imagination so that when you go outside, the children will stay there. Like I saw one thing was, um, you know, showing them creepy crawlies and, uh, you know, different insects and things. And like, I was even thinking they're like, if I'm doing the garden, if I'm digging a hole and there's worms in the ground and my kids love to come over and pick them up and they're like, look, I'm like, oh yeah, right, go away. Exactly. But, but they love that. They absolutely, children have a connection with wild things. You've said it exactly. If, mm. if you just lift up a stone and you see anything moving, every child <laughs> in the preschool would have been over at that or there's a rabbit jumps out of a burrow. So it's a question of extending that and, and being one in the moment with your children in that place so that their memories, they make a, that, that last a lifetime. You know, parenting is hard in the modern mm. world. And as I've said before, getting outside makes everything better. Children connect with nature, but really the focus of this book is that they can connect with you as parents as well. And they're easy things to do. You mm. don't need, like I think sometimes when people think of outdoor learning or forest schools, they think you have to be as fit as somebody who can climb Mount Everest or that you <laughs> yeah. have to have a bag of tricks with, you know, embroidery needles and all that. Yeah. This is pop this book, Thrive Outdoor uh, Nature Activities in the back of a backpack, a flask for you, that's always very important. Come yeah. take yourself and the right rain gear and your right, you know, and every day will be better if you do this. And you don't need a big forest, a local park or your back garden or even, you know, in apartment complexes, you can make an outdoor learning experience by, for example, looking at the cycle of the day. Mm. And I think it's very important to for parents to kind of listen to their children and recognize their children's interests. Maybe your child doesn't like mark making or creating or painting mm. stones, but they could be good problem solvers. So those particular stones, they might be looking at the size and shape. So as an early years educator, I've kind of learned ways to connect into the children's interests for problem solving and say, explore size and shape. So what are the bigger stones? What are the smaller ones? If we were building a tower, which one would we use? Mm. And all of those opportunities for problem solving are developing mathematical thoughts. And in it all, you're connecting with your child, you know, and your child knows that, you know, my mom thinks I'm a good problem solver here. I'm a good problem solver. It builds up a, a sense of their own self and their own interests being important. And it's a source of connection for their whole lives. And of course, with the wonderful world as well. You know, we talk about a nature fix. 
and we talk about children's wild calling. Mm. But it's actually true. There is a nature fix. But I think sometimes we need a bit of information, you know, a bit of information and a bit of inspiration as well. Yeah, because Gillian, like there's a lot of parents out there um, who might just think, God, I'm not creative or I'm not artistic. You know, they wouldn't, you know, like, God, the idea of painting a fairy door onto something might just <laughs> drive them into a spin or, you know, or parents might think, you know, I don't have a lot of time or, you know, I don't have a lot of energy because I've been working all week and then at the weekend, okay, I can, you know, I don't want to be taken into all of this art stuff but it's like as you say getting out going for a walk just exploring nature that kind of stuff talking to your children exactly exactly and this book is exactly for them they are all easy activities they don't take long to prepare but it is also about being in the moment out there and you know um, again movement is the, the central mode of learning for children for young children so even getting out there and moving, they will be learning themselves. Their bodies will, you know, have the opportunity to get fit. Mm. And of course, you know, even that alone changes the tape. We all know the days you're cooped up in the house. It's, you know, the kids are grizzly, you're grizzly. But mm. if you get outside, even for five minutes, that whole energy changes. Children get to, as I say, get physically fit. And I think in summer as well, parents, uh, you know, see it as an opportunity maybe to develop healthier eating habits because there's more fruit and vegetables available. So I put easy picnic ideas in into the book. You know, the kids can help you make butterfly sandwiches and you can make it fun. And let me re-emphasize, if you're busy and you're tired, this is the book for you. It's not complicated. And it's, again, to encourage you just to get out there, to look at when you get into the forest have a run around, have that, you know, lots of kids are rumbunctious and they're wild and that's not a bad thing, but it's a hard thing to manage in a small house or in an apartment. But once they get outside, those big wild movements are part of the wild outdoors yeah. and that day will be easier for those children. And, and believe me, however bad or tired you feel, you'll feel better when you come back. And, you know, the day will go better. I, 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 I do have, you know, one of the things I suppose I'm learning from my own mistakes and my children when I was tired and I just, you know, stayed in and, and the day got worse. If yeah. I'd only got out more often, it would have been better. So that's my mission to tell people it will be better if you just get out there, you know. And Gillian, the name of the book again, it's Thrive Outdoor Nature Activities for Children and Families. And where can people get this book or how can they get it? Yes, they can get this in um, all good uh, independent bookstores Mm. and they can also get it from Book Depository. Book Depository. Brilliant. Gillian. Lovely. Gillian, listen, thanks so much for all of the tips. I've been taking them on board now this summer. And thanks very much for taking our call this morning. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan today on the Opinion Line. Now, just uh, with regards to the interview I did with Claire Kelleher, who was diagnosed with MS at the age of 26, Cahill got in touch to say, Good morning, Fiona. I totally concur with your last caller's statement of MS. It's not the end of the world. I had symptoms at 17 years old, diagnosed at 21. I kept it a secret from employers for 26 
26 years. I've worked in many countries in the offshore oil and gas industry. Did my master's in 2005 after taking a year out. Life is good. Glad to hear it, Cahal, and thanks for getting in touch with us. And Declan got in touch to say, listening to Claire Kelleher and such a lively, bubbly interview, you rock. And she certainly does, Declan. And if anybody else wants to get in touch, it's 1850-715-996-0833-969696. Now, a Cork mum of a little girl with Down syndrome has created a new product to help her daughter communicate better. Mum's name is Sally Flanagan and her little daughter is Sadie. And Sally joins me now. Sally, good morning. Morning, Fiona. How are you? Welcome to the Opinion Line, Sally. Uh, first of all, can you just tell me a little bit about Sadie? Yeah, so um, Sadie is my youngest daughter. I have three girls. and mm. is Two, she'll be um, three in August. And she had a very rough start to life. She was actually born in Dublin and went straight to Crumlin for her first surgery when mm. she was one day old. Her, her bowel and her stomach weren't attached. And... Um, there they discovered that she had a very um, dense cataracts in both of her eyes, which um, would have caused blindness if they weren't removed. So at six weeks old, she had the cataracts removed and she wore contact lenses then for about a year and a half. And the end of last year, she had permanent lenses fitted into her eyes. To, they've really brought on her eyesight. And she also had... Um, open heart surgery as well at, at four months. So mm. her, first, um, her first year of life was very um, tough going for her, but she's a real trooper and she, she always defies the odds and comes out on top. Um, so so I suppose the eyesight thing was kind of where where um, the visual comes in. She loves bright colours and very mm. clear images and things. And so uh, communication then is something that you care about. So just tell me a little bit about ABC Communicate With Me. What is it? Yeah, so um, listen, everyone has the right to be able to um, communicate. You know, it's not always just verbally. Mm. So um, ABC Communicate With Me kind of started last year when the first lockdown happened. I mean, Sadie had been coming on leaps and bounds with her um, team and cope and um, through the charities we attend, the Down Syndrome Centre in Cork and Down Syndrome Cork. But then everything kind of stopped and I found her behaviour hugely regressed and I kind of felt like what she had been learning, she was starting to lose and it was sad to see and sad to watch her. So um, my father is a printer and in fairness, nothing's ever too much of him to ask. And Mm. he... um, he helped me um, print, you know, very clear images for Sadie. Like we started off kind of with, um, I suppose, routines, what would help her because some things would cause her huge distress, like maybe bath time. Yeah. So I would do things like um, do show her that we're going to do something nice first. Yeah. Then we have bath time and then we can do something nice again. And by kind of sticking with it, it kind of started to kick in with her, you know, that you have to do the bad thing to get to the good thing kind of a thing. Yeah. So it's like Uh, a series of visual cards, is it? Yes, correct. So it's all different components. So we kind of built on it from there then. Um, And I kind of thought about the future and what we may like, what like to learn that she hasn't moved on to yet. 
so there's all different um, scenarios. Like I've, from what I have done with her, you know, like nursery rhymes. She absolutely loves nursery rhymes, mm. and I put in days of the week. There's lots of food. Um, food cards now because like I have different scenarios for the food where you can be feeding the animal uh, animals so she's big child can understand um, that kind of concept and it may help with feeding times and frustrations around that you know you could yeah. be saying oh look I'm feeding the bear and now I'm feeding you so um, and have you noticed in uh, an improvement in Sadie's communication oh, skills massively absolutely Absolutely, massively. From using it, she's even learned how to point. Her signing has come on hugely. Um, you know, if I if I say to her, if she's frustrated and I offer her two things, what do you want? Mm. She, she can point to what she wants or show you what she wants. And like I said, like the difficult times with Sadie, back time, sometimes, you know, going out, they can be very hard for her. But using visuals help her understand what's happening. And Sally, could I just ask you, you're decided now to make a, a business out of this project and you're going to be selling the packs online, online for other parents, is that right? Yeah, yes, correct. Yeah, I felt, um, you know, like a lot of families may not have access to, like, you know, printers, laminators, mm. all these kind of things. And also it's extremely time consuming and like overwhelming, you know, you don't really know where to start. Um, and, like, I'm not an early educator and I'm not a speech and language therapist mm. or anything like that. So it's all from a parent's perspective. So I just thought what fits into our life and what suits Sadie and kind of try to think of that and put it all together in one box and hopefully that it can help parents in there. And, like, I suppose, I suppose in a preschool setting maybe or whatever, and it might work for them. And how, how, how can parents get it? Do they just go online and Google yeah, ABC so, Communicate? Um, I, ha- I have a website set up. It's abccommunicatewithme.ie. Okay. And from there you can um, you can buy it. And also I have an Instagram page which is, which is also called ABC Communicate With Me. And on there I've just been kind of showing how, how I've been using it or um, maybe a few ideas um, and what works for us and Sadie brilliant yeah great stuff listen Sally thanks so much for sharing your story with us and it's ABC communicate with me dot IE it sounds absolutely great and great to hear that Sadie is benefiting from it the lines are live and we're ready to talk can we just talk Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back to the final hour of this Thursday's Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Fiona Corcoran sitting in for PJ Coogan today and tomorrow. Now, figures show that 244 dogs were reported stolen to Gardaí in 2020. Dogs Trust is calling on our politicians to introduce a database for dogs to help counter thieves. And joining me on the line now is Karina Fitzsimons from the Dogs Trust charity. Karina, welcome to the show. Hi Fiona, thanks so much for having us on. You're very welcome. Karina, explain to me first of all how this would work. Okay, so the thought process behind this is the introduction of some laws last February and basically the laws require if you're advertising a dog online, 
you have to have certain information. You have to have the dog's age, their microchip number, the country of origin. And if you're a dog breeding establishment or if you're selling more than five pets in a year. And unfortunately, those laws haven't been enforced. Mm. So our executive director was in front of an Oireachtas committee earlier in the week. And what we'd like to see introduced is a system whereby there is um, a database that when someone's uploading an ad, there's a verification process that happens in the background which compares the information they're uploading to the information available on a database. Mm. Now, they won't see it. It's just, it happens in the background, so it's all automated. But if the data doesn't match, the ad can't be posted. So if somebody's dog is stolen and they report that dog is stolen to the microchip database and someone tries to upload it, it won't upload and it will flag it. And then that means that the person can be contacted and they can't upload and sell a stolen dog. So hopefully, if it's implemented, it will stop stolen dogs being available for sale on the internet. Right, okay. And do we need a ban on cash sales then? Do you think that that would make the sale of dogs more traceable? Absolutely. I don't think we can we can actually ban cash sales because cash is a legal tender. However, when you think about all the methods of payment that are available to us nowadays, there's like online, there's apps, you know, there's so many different ways of sending somebody a payment and that makes the payment traceable. You can get a receipt, you approve a payment for your consumer rights. But also as well, if you meet somebody at the side of a road or a garage or a car park and you hand them over cash, mm. which has happened to many people who contacted us, and you get a puppy and the puppy sadly passes away or there's something wrong with the dog or the pup, you, and that person drives off and switches off their mobile number or just uses the number, you, you've no proof. You don't, you don't know who they are. You, there's no way to contact them. So that's what's happening at the moment and happened all last year throughout the mm. pandemic in particular that these unscrupulous breeders were advertising dogs and they were stating things like reared in a family-loving home. And that wasn't the case at all. They were reared in a large, you know, either a puppy farm or a large-scale um, dog-breeding commercial establishment. And we want basically to give people the power to decide. So if people have to put up their dog-breeding establishment number, mm. um, someone can just pop that number into um, an online database and say, OK, that's such and such from this county and they have X amount of dogs do I want to buy the dog from them? And if the answer is yes, you go ahead. So what we're trying to say is, if you are rearing dogs responsibly and you're proud of the dogs that you're breeding, you should also be proud to give all of this information, as is the law, because you have nothing to hide behind. You shouldn't, you know, there's people kind of hide behind the facade of online ads and there's a lot of um, misinformation put on ads. And unfortunately, a lot of people have been tricked into buying dogs from puppy farms. Mm. And at the moment, the emphasis is on the public to to look into this. But because some people are so unscrupulous, they go to extreme lengths to, to actually hide and disguise where the dog's coming from. And often it's too late before people realise where they're really getting their dog from. And, like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like during the lockdown, we know that there was a huge rise in the purchase of dogs, and the price went up of dogs. I mean, yeah. you know, you look now for a dog, on, on it's, it could be up to two grand for a particular type of breed of dog. So, do you think that that's driving the problem? Absolutely. Like the demand, you know, has been huge, and I know some people, you know, we say, oh, last year was the year of the dog because you know dogs did so much for people, but it was also the year, unfortunately, of the puppy farmer because. It's actually quite sad because a lot of people were so lonely during the various lockdowns um, and needed company. So we feel that they were almost preying on this um, vulnerability and the prices went up. And we were actually told by one 
breeder who was selling, I, I can't remember, it may have been Labrador dog, mm. and they were selling them at the price they always had. And somebody actually bought them and then they saw them on an online platform for twice the price. The same so, dog. They, then, somebody actually bought some the dog and then sold it for double the price. Like double the price, yeah. Oh and unfortunately what was also happening last year was people were rushing into getting dogs, not realising the responsibility. And then unfortunately instead of contacting an animal welfare like ourselves, Mm. They were then reselling them online, and if you if you look online, um, over the past few months, there were quite a few puppies of between, um, six to nine months of age that people, you know, life has started to return a little bit to normal now, and people underestimate just the sheer responsibility and what's going to happen to the dog when people return to work. So sadly, yes, that 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 is the case. And Karina, how do our laws here compare to our near, nearest neighbours in the UK? Our laws are actually really good. What yeah. the issue really is the enforce the lack of enforcement. Right. If all of our laws, our animal welfare laws, were enforced, we wouldn't have a huge issue because enforcing the sale, supply, and advertising of pets is basically the first step in stamping out puppy farming. Because if we give people the option to decide, do I want to buy from a reputable family breeder who has bred this line of dogs for years, or do I want to buy from someone who has three hundred odd dogs? You know that that's therein lies the solution almost because you're giving people that power to, to say no I, I, that's not the type of environment I want my dog to come from. Now that's not to say that every single you know, dog breeding establishment is bad but unfortunately the law at the moment is you only need to have one member of staff per 25 breeding female dogs. So if that's not including their puppies or the, the male stud dogs. So if they all have puppies, there technically could be one person looking after over 100 dogs. Now, mm. I have two dogs <laughs> and that yeah. takes up most of my time. Yeah. So, you know, it's just not possible to give those dogs everything that they need. So that's something else that really needs to change as well. And um, another protection y- that the Dogs Trust has lobbied for is the laws that were brought in in 2020 to make it a legal requirement for puppies to be eight weeks of age or older before being sold. Where are we with that? That is actually part of the sales supply and advertising of pets that puppies must be eight weeks. But unfortunately, we are still seeing illegal ads that puppies that are under that age. Um, unfortunately, we're also seeing some um, breeds that are being um, imported from... Um, in Europe mm-hmm. and puppies that are imported need to be at least 16 weeks of age 15 to 16 weeks because they would have had to have a rabies vaccination to come into the country so that's actually quite serious um, for, for the dog welfare and for people as well because we don't want rabies to enter the country um, so yeah the 8 weeks of age is because the mum teaches the pups you know that they play and if the pup nips too mm-hmm. hard the mum will tell them off So and they play with their litter mates so they learn all that kind of like voice inhibition and, and how to react each other and they get confidence so if you take a pup away from their mum and the litter too young it can have lifelong implications for their behaviour so puppies should be at least 8 weeks of age yeah, before they, they can be bought um, adopted or sold I know that we were talking there about the the huge demand during lockdown and I know people now are thinking about going back to the office and going back to work. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, a lot of families in particular are thinking still of buying a dog, myself included. <laughs> My children have me tormented to buy a dog. <laughs> but uh, like, what would be your message to anybody who is thinking of buying a dog online? I would actually say if you're thinking of buying a dog online, there's only one place that we could actually recommend at the moment, and that's petbond.ie. And it's run by a group of vets, and they ensure that the ads that are put on their website are from reputable breeders. Otherwise, I would recommend going to your local animal rescue or to Dogs Trust. We actually now rehome all over the country and then in Cork as well. Mm. Um, Because of the lockdown, 
we actually created our regional rehoming project. And there was a time when there was too many dogs in Ireland and we used to send some dogs to our rehoming centres in the UK. But because of the travel restrictions, we stopped doing that. And now we've actually set up um, a whole nationwide network of um, rehoming. So anybody can rehome a dog from us and you don't actually have to travel to Dublin now to meet the dog. Hmm. Um, What was that again? Petsbond.ie, was it? Petsbond.ie, yeah. Because we have to recognise there are some people who have their hearts set on a specific breed or they may have allergies or there may be, you know, whatever their personal circumstances are, we can't expect every single person to adopt a dog as much as we'd love that to happen. Um, So Petsbond.ie is the only place that we would recommend and we have lots of information on our website. It's dogstrust.ie forward slash getting a dog and there's actually a quiz on there you can take to see if your dog ready and there's also a little quiz to see if you can spot a puppy farm and lots of tips of things to look out for. Brilliant. But I suppose the main thing really is when you're thinking of getting a dog is isn't time and money. Um, you know, do you have someone to mind the dog when you're in work? Um, who will walk the dog? Um, will they do that before they go to work? Who will go home at lunchtime to let the dog out? And, um, you know, do you have money to cover veterinary fees and pet insurance? Mm. And when you go on holiday, so it's, it's quite a lot. It's basically like taking on a small four-covered toddler. <laughs> so, yeah, like um, I said to my seven-year-old that, uh, you know, all those things about, you know, going to work and the holidays yeah. or whatever, and his solution was to buy two dogs. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell him that. That can be double the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and Karina, just like on a final note, we're talking tomorrow. It's actually something that we are going to be exploring tomorrow is um, anxiety in dogs when people do start yeah. going back to work. You know, they've been at home for yeah. a year or more with their owners and people will be going back to work. Is that something that the charity has noticed more of? Absolutely. We, we're getting lots more inquiries from people and also from a lot of responsible people who want to make sure it doesn't happen to their dog. Mm. And also as well, sadly, there may be people who don't realise it's an issue because they don't see the behaviour because the dog does it when they're not there. So unless your neighbour tells you your dog's howling or unless they have been, you know, ripping up furniture or the blinds, um, or you leave a little camera behind to see how they get on. So we have lots of information on our website. It's dogstrust.ie forward slash separation. And we would actually recommend that anybody who's returning to their office, even if it's just for one day a week, it doesn't mm. matter whether you're going back full time or part time, is to have a look at that section. And there's lots of little tips on how to get your dog used to being around you. But the one thing we would say to everybody, whether you're going back to work or not, um, is to give your dog some time on their own. Um, especially young puppies who've been adopted last year, they literally may never have been on their own. So they Mm -hmm. need to learn how to cope with that. And if it's something simple, even like popping up a baby gate when you're in a different room and giving them something tasty to chew and just building up that amount of time over a period... Um, but as I say, we've lots more information and lots of um, in-depth okay. tips on our website. Or I suppose even leaving a radio on in the background so there's a bit of noise. Would that work? Yeah, no? it just depends on what you're leaving on. You probably don't want to leave on Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> leave on PJ Coogan. <laughs> Karina, listen, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning to talk to us about that. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 96 96. On Quartz 96 FM.
Now we're just going to go back to something that we were discussing in the first hour with Eva MacDonald. She, MacDonald sorry, she was the, six, the 18 year old who was telling us why she believes the voting age should be lowered to 16 and she had some very strong views on that and John contacted us here on the Opinion Line on 96FM, Cork's 96FM this morning to say the frontal cortex isn't fully developed until age 25. It does develop faster in women but there's still a noticeable effect. Teenagers will come out in favour of fashionable top without considering other topics that are just as important but are not discussed by influence makers. Okay, John, thank you very much for that. I'm not sure if Eva would agree with that and, you know, she was very strong in her views. Another John got in touch with us. This time it was Councillor John Marr. He was listening to the interview with Eva and he supports the idea. John, good morning. Morning, Fiona. How are things? How are you? Good, John. Why do you support Eva's call for the voting age to be reduced to 16? Yeah, well, first of all, Eva was was really good this morning, and I think mm. she said it out. So, you know, coming from a younger person's perspective, but I, I think it is something that we need to consider now. I this idea that that young people, you know, that they're unable to make a decision. I think you could flip that argument on a thirty-eight year old like myself, or a fifty-six year old, mm. or you know, I mean, from knocking doors myself, we get the impression that people aren't happy, and uh, currently, and sixteen-year-olds don't vote. So, I mean, by letting them in, can it get any worse? I don't think so. Um, and I think that we do need to engage with um, with that age group. And I think, as I suppose, speaking to you as, as a youth leader uh, mm. with the Scouts, I mean, the name of our game is to empower young people to make decisions. And when you do that, you get really positive results and you build, uh, you know, a better community. And I just see it as a really positive thing. I mean... You know, people say, oh, politics doesn't affect me. It affects all of us, you mm. know. And we, we have young people, I mean, they're out working for part-time jobs, you know. We need we need them to engage with the political system because, I mean, with, with regards to working conditions, worker workers' rights, their entitlements. I mean, that's just a, a very, you know, it, it's the first step of it. They're going to college, they're, they're, they're expected to pay fees. And then to, to, to block them out, you know, they pay taxes. Yeah. Um, and then just say, "Oh no!" So you're 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 mature enough to contribute to, to society by paying taxes. Um, you are keeping, you know. Well, I mean, you 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 you'll hear you'll hear it as as we open up again, which mm. is a real positive thing. The amount of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year olds, well, eighteen can vote, but mm. that are going back to work. Um, weekend jobs and keeping the place taking over. The John, do you think that, for? like, you know, Eva was obviously really, really strong in her views and she's very politically aware and she was saying that she has conversations with her own peers and her own friends about politics. But oh, are the majority of 16-year-olds like that? Or, do you know, like, the, I know you're talking about going back to work and school, but a lot of them are, are still in school and they're living at home with their parents. And are they are they concerned about politics? Are they, you know, do they, do they care enough about politics to go Go out and vote. Uh, does a 28-year-old, does a 56-year-old. Um, but to answer your question directly is that, you know, I think they do. I think they mm. are. We've seen we've seen the marriage equality referendum and the young people, I mean, go, go through the votes, go through the boxes, the repeal referendum. That was by, you know, it was by a lot of people. But when you look down through it, a lot of young people mobilised um, and, and engaged. And I think also, as, as we'd say, to answer your question, we need that engagement to happen through schools and through education. Mm. Um, you know, and just because it hasn't happened up till now isn't a good enough reason 
uh, not for it to, to happen in the future. Um, I think the 2024 local elections is a time for where it can happen. Mm. And as I said, yeah, there are going to be people that aren't engaged, but that happens currently with over 18s. You know, unfortunately, and, and what I would say to people, and I think this is where it comes into school and education, is that, you know, it's better it's better to engage in the process. You mightn't always get the results you want. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think you have a better chance when you do tick that box and you do put pressure on, on, on a local representative. And I, I mean, you know, I'm very fortunate um, is that, you know, I, I was always supported as a younger candidate, um, but I was still nervous. Mm. Um, it, like it took me till I was 36 to, to, to take the plunge. You know, so there, there is that, um, there, you know, you, you'll be overwhelmed and that bit of self-doubt. But, you know, I think we need to encourage more younger people involved. It will keep the likes of me on our toes. Um, but they do have, they do um, have a big contribution to make. Um, and I think they need to be supported by, by, by parties and by, and by, by more senior politicians. But I, I cannot see this been a negative thing. This is only a positive thing, is getting more people engaged in, 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 in politics and in, you know, and, and in, in shaping. Because remember, when you elect a, a councillor in particular, it's a five-year stint. Mm. So for that five years, you've got people representing you. And I do, I do believe I try my best, and I know all the others do as well. You do try and reflect all of the community. Um, but I just think that if we engage people at a younger age, um, I don't think the world is going to end. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've seen plenty of good things done by young people, and I think that will continue. And there will be an element of um, there will be an element of people not engaged. But let's not forget that happens already. So, and what would you I say to the people then who are arguing that a sixteen-year-old is not mature enough to cast a vote? And I know that you could say that about any age group, but yeah, just you know, I laugh, I laugh at that. Right? I had a conversation with Dee about five years ago, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I didn't realise what was ahead of me. But yeah. listen, we've got some very mature sixteen-year-olds, and we've got some very immature. But we've also got some very immature thirty-eight-year-olds and some very mature. You know, 38 rows. You can use that argument on anything. Mm. Um, you know, I, I just think that if that's your only argument, that's very weak. Brilliant, Jonathan. Thanks. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 996. On Quartz 96 FM. Welcome back. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ today. Now, how do you react to change in your life? Is it something you embrace or does it spark fear and dread? Well, GP and mental health specialist Dr. Harry Barry has written a book about it. How change impacts on our lives and how the best ways and what are the best ways to deal with it. And he joins me now on the line, Dr. Harry Barry, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thank you very much for joining us. Dr. Barry, what sparked you to write this book, Embracing Change? Well, it was very interesting, uh, Fiona, that I believe when I was commissioned to write this book be just before COVID arrived. So many people <laughs> would say I wrote it as a result of COVID. But no, actually, I found myself unbelievably writing a book about change yeah. during perhaps one of the greatest periods of change uh, that any of us in our lifetime would have seen. So it was really quite a surreal experience. But the idea behind the book, Fiona, was that I've always been interested in change and in the interest in the area of resilience and how we can become more adaptable because I often feel that our mental health is hugely dependent on our ability to think on our feet to be able to adapt, to be able to cope with change. Mm. 
And I was particularly interested because, believe it or not, uh, this month I'm actually four decades uh, working as as a family doctor, as a GP over those many, many years. And I've experienced and I've walked the walk with countless uh, uh, patients who've allowed me the privilege of walking with them during every conceivable major transitional period of change in Mm. life, you know, from simply from the student going into college and picking the wrong course to a woman entering the menopause to a new baby arriving in the house to a diagnosis of mental illness to a diagnosis of cancer to a period of loneliness to a relationship breakup you know all these periods which all of us face Fiona we we can't dodge them they're Mm. all coming our way you know irrespective of the pandemic you know what I mean The, the pandemic made them worse for us all but like this is going, the pandemic will be over really within the next six months, three to six months, we will be out of it to all extents and purposes. But we still be faced with all these quite challenging periods in our lives. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you mentioned there about cancer and, you know, a, a, a diagnosis like that. And obviously that's going to cause an awful lot of fear in the person who gets the diagnosis and in their family. But things like, you know, changing job or, or moving to a different place or, as you say, going to college. Like, um, do, do these kind of events spark fear in people or and, and, and why? Like, why why does change spark fear in people? Yeah, Is it- I, I think that's a really good question. And I think, uh, firstly, it's not just fear. But everybody would respond to change depending on how they think. Because at the heart of this book is that it's our thinking about events that cause us to be distressed, which is based on pragmatism or CBT. Mm. So from a practical point of view, how I view that change, if I view that change in a positive, optimistic kind of way, well, then I'll handle it in that kind of way. But suppose I go into a period of change, such as going to college or a new job or whatever, or even the arrival of a new baby into the house. Hmm. Suppose I approach all of that uh, and my thinking about it is not right. Let, let's take the, 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 the young, the young mum who brings home a child for the first, a baby for the first time. And she, everybody around her is delighted. She's really initially overjoyed, obviously, with her partner about the arrival of this child. But then the reality comes and all the awful struggles that happen in the first six months, which we don't really talk about, which so many women absolutely devastate them. Mm. And some women then will respond if their natural thinking mechanism is to kind of be very self-critical of themselves and be very hard on themselves, begin to kind of say, well, no, why am I not coping so well? Why is everybody coping so well? So then they start to feel very down. Mm. So it's actually their thinking about the event that's causing them to get into difficulty. So So is this book more about... uh, rethinking change and building up a resilience yes. to change yes very much we can't we can't uh, stop change Fiona mm. in other words all these things are going to happen is whether we like it or not uh, but if we can we, if we can develop a kind of a pragmatic uh, uh, way of thinking about them which helps us feel a lot better about them and helps us deal a lot better with them then we cope much better with them and I have seen these uh, kind of CBT pragmatism driven techniques absolutely transform the lives of so many people. You know, people who were simply not coping with these periods of change because, we, you know, we would have helped them to look at them differently, to kind of change the way they look at them. Then they suddenly find, you know, I'm handling this much better and coping this with much better. But there's a really important kind of message here 
that all of us, Fiona, have certain ways of thinking about the world. We mm. call these our irrational beliefs, and we all have them. Every solitary person has them. Uh, and we, we develop these from our, you know, our adolescence, our young adult life, and we kind of ways of thinking about the world, a lot of the time which are not very helpful to us. And if we can identify how we personally, and I do this in the book, showing, showing how we can identify the emotions and through that the thinking patterns, if we can identify how we work, how we think versus somebody else thinks, then we will, we will become a lot more resilient at coping with these periods of change. So we don't have to wait until something happens. We are, we are already teaching ourselves how to be more resilient, how to cope. And of course, this is incredibly important for our mental health because it reduces anxiety, stress, depression, frustration, and so many other uh, challenges to our mental health. So we're, if we're in that kind of a situation where we have, uh, you know, where we are depressed or we're you know, struggling with a new baby or we've experienced the loss of a relative, like, how do we take a pragmatic approach to that? Well, I think the pragmatic approach would very much be that very often we can't change the situation, but we can change how we view the situation. So, for example, let's take the lady uh, who brings home the new baby. Mm. Suppose, for example, she changes her thinking to realize, hey, what am I doing here? I'm actually whipping myself. It's the situation that's abnormal, not me. So pragmatically, she would have to kind of rethink that and say, look, every woman who comes home with a new baby is struggling. Every mother is not getting enough sleep. Every mother is is going to be up at all hours, is going to be exhausted, is going to maybe irritable with her partner, is going to feel kind of shut off from her workplace and and is going to be experiencing all these uh, different feelings and emotions. So she, if she could learn to normalize herself and, uh, and just accept it's the situation that's abnormal, then that in turn will, of course, help her to go out and maybe make changes, maybe get in contact with other, other women in similar situations and try and link in with those and try and kind of be a lot kinder to herself. And, of course, that can be shut off. Uh, a trip down into postnatal depression, which might might make it be very destructive for her and, mm. and her family. So it's amazing how um, just being pragmatic, just changing your thinking and how you look at something can have a dramatic effect on how you cope with it. And of course, Dr. Barry, not all change is a bad thing. I mean, especially if you're in a job that you're unhappy in and, you know, an opportunity comes up and you're going to jump at the chance. Um, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I couldn't agree more to Fiona that uh, for some of us uh, during the pandemic, for example, the, the changes which will occur uh, will be very negative and for others it may be very positive. For mm. example, you might have been exactly as you're right to find out how many people were in jobs they were very unhappy with, maybe doing long commutes, maybe you know, not, not just happy with their lives, maybe not spending enough time with their families and maybe have uh, during this lockdown have had the chance to rethink and maybe look at mm. something, maybe a change, maybe doing another course, maybe going into a different area that might improve the quality of their lives. So of course change can be really positive but the problem for us is that there will be these periods of change which won't be so positive and we're all going to get them and we we can't run away from them but if we can learn how we think and and change how we think about these situations that's what a what a wonderful thing to have in life that's what our young people are struggling so much Mm. with 
they are not particularly resilient because they're not able to, they're not adaptive enough to change their thinking about situations and therefore they really struggle and their mental health. And the pandemic has shown this in spades, that our young people have really struggled with this pandemic. They've really struggled with, with trying to be resilient to them. Although, I mean, they've done a wonderful job and fair juice to them and I, my heart goes out to them in the situation that many of them found themselves in. But, you know, going forward in life, this is just the first of many of these kind of difficult periods of life they're going to they're going to encounter. So the more we can make them resilient, the more we can make ourselves resilient, the better we're all going to cope. We might have some listeners now who are at home listening to this and they have, you know, a major life change ahead of them and they're maybe feeling a bit anxious. What kind of advice would you give to them? Well, for example, the thinking behind anxiety is the person who's very anxious about something is usually trying to control the situation. You know, they want absolute certainty that something's going to work out. So I teach them, for example, that life is very uncertain and I even give them exercises sometimes to show them how to manage the uncertainty of life. And a lot of the time as well, we catastrophize, you know, we're we're busy building up all the awful things that might happen, even though in reality, most of the time, these things are not going to happen at all. Mm. And a lot of the time, people who are very anxious are rating themselves as a failure or useless or or they're, they're just not good enough. Uh, and, and I challenge, I show, you, I show in the book how you can challenge all these kind of thinking patterns. So when you apply these then to these situations, you find I'm no longer looking for absolute certainty. I'm learning to accept that I have to be more adjustable, more adaptable, mm. and, and learn to cope with uncertainty because that's a real part of life. Is there a, an element of self-belief in that as well? Because, you know, you might kind of think, oh, sure, look, I'll give this a go, but if it doesn't work out, sure, it doesn't work out. Instead of approaching it and saying, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're totally correct. Um, um, I, I think what we have to be is uh, is realistic about life. Do you know what mm. I mean? We, we can't be overtly negative or overtly positive. There's no point in going into a situation and saying, of course this is going to be wonderful because it may not turn out like that. But I think the, the, the attitude is, no, I, I'm going to... The real sticker of life, the real resilience thing of life is that I, I can, may go into a particular job, I may not like it, maybe I'll end up leaving it, you know what I mean? But I'm not a failure if that happens. It just meant that I gave something a try, it didn't work out, and I move on and try something else. And that's the great resilience thing of life. So learning to kind of accept that, you know, I can't control all the variables, but I can certainly go in, give it my best, stop rating myself as a failure if it doesn't work. Mm. I, a great example of that, Fiona, and, and so many people out there can relate to this is, uh, relationships break down all the time. Maybe even go, a relationship has gone on for quite a long period of time. And so many, uh, particularly girls, but also guys as well, uh, end up believing that they're a failure, that there's something wrong with them because the relationship failed. Instead mm. of realising that relationships fail, not people. So learning to that, that resilience, that they be kind to themselves and know I gave this relationship a shot. I've, we've done everything I could do. It just as simply hasn't worked. And the great resilience thing of life, of course, is getting up and trying again. So Brilliant. off I go into the into the world again, of dating again. And Dr. Barry, the book again is called? It's called Embracing Change. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it's out in all good, uh, all good bookshops. All good bookshops. <laughs> great stuff. Listen, Dr. Barry, thanks so much for uh, talking to me this morning. A very interesting conversation there. And the book, of course, is Embracing Change. Now, to our next guest and our final guest this morning, one of the fallouts from the pandemic is the backlog of cancer care across Cork and nationwide. And Fine Gael's health spokesperson, um, Cullen Burke, joins me now. Deputy Burke, good morning to you. 
Good morning. Uh, Deputy Burke, how bad is the situation? Well, I suppose to just to give you the figures, there was a 33% drop in um, elective surgeries in racial cancer last year. And just to put that into figures, there was 36,120 less procedures done in 2020. Um, and then on the other side, the referral rate in relation to, uh, say, breast cancer, lung cancer was down. Each of those was down 33%. But the referral rate for prostate cancer was down 50%. So I suppose there's two messages here. One, and I've, in fact, as recently as last night, had a, a detailed discussion with the Tornishta about how can we now fast track, um, you know, catch up with this backlog, especially in cancer care where mm. people are waiting now. Part of the backlog is, on the one hand, we had the COVID problem um, where there was less work, had, you know, could be done in the hospitals. And a lot of that was outsourced to the private hospitals during the pandemic. But then the cyber attack, which has uh, affected the imaging um, equipment and all of that um, delays, and that will still take some time to resolve. And I think there's there, there's no easy fix on this, so it'll take a bit of time. And I think we now need to look at alternatives as regards how can we fast-track some of this work. Mm. I think there's, a, there's a, a very serious issue there as well, and that's in relation to medical staff or nursing staff. A lot of them are feeling because it has been an extremely difficult 18 months. Um, they've worked extremely hard. Then to have to deal with the cyber attack has been extremely, um, you know, traumatic for them. And uh, it is just a huge challenge now um, in trying to deal with all of these issues. Mm. So we need to set in place a six-month, a 12-month plan to see how can we... Um, reduce the level of, back, uh, of of delays that are there. I also think it's important to get out the message that, you know, I, I was saying about the, the, the rate of referrals is a way down. Yeah. Part of that is because people are afraid to go to their GP or because of COVID they were just reluctant because they feel, you know, that the thing wasn't as important as what it, it actually is. And what I'm saying is that if people feel... Uh, unwell and that they feel that they have some symptoms then they shouldn't um, you know they shouldn't delay in going to their GP um, to make sure that they get the appropriate referral and they get the appropriate treatment so I would say and I think that's a clear message in fact at the health committee yesterday with the Irish Hospital Consultants Association and with the Irish uh, Cancer Society and we had the um, the Irish Medical Organization, and, and they all had the same message. Look, you know, we all try to do our best as regards looking after our health, mm. but none of us are experts. And that if we feel that uh, we have an underlying condition um, or that we have symptoms, then that we shouldn't be afraid um, to to get it checked. Um, and I think that's extremely important to get that and, message out there. And you are calling on the Minister for Health to engage with representative groups, managers and clinicians to help reduce the backlog. Yeah, in fact, that's one of the issues that came up at the Health Committee as well, is that um, the medical people in plus the cancer society were raising that some of the issues can be dealt with at local level, but they're restricted because the decision-making process is very centralised and they're looking for that there would be greater engagement um, on that at local level between HSC management, consultants, the, the nursing bodies, so that if solutions can be identified, then 
why not implement them without having to go mm-hmm. through a central database for a central system for, for getting approvals to, for dealing with that. And I think the other thing that's come up very much, you know, we're pushing very much about an elective hospital in Cork. I'm mm-hmm. very um, disappointed with the lack of consultation that there has been with, say, for instance, with Slant, between Slantcare and the South Southwest Hospital Group. I know the South Southwest Hospital Group have worked very hard about getting um, an elective hospital built in Cork. Yeah. Um, I'm disappointed with the lack of consultation that Slaunter Care has had with them, but also the lack of consultation by Slaunter Care with the people who are on the front line, the, the, the people like the Irish Nursing and Midwifery Free um, uh, Union the, and with the IHCA and with the IMO, uh, with those members who are working at the coal base on the ground here in Cork, um, there's been very little um, contact yeah. with them as regards what they would like to see. Because okay, Deputy Worker, I'm afraid time is against us. I'm going to have to cut you off there. Sorry, but your point is an important one. And listen, thanks very much for coming on and talking to us this morning. I just wanted to say a huge congratulations to someone I spoke to on the show a few weeks ago, Kean O'Neill. You might remember Kean uses a wheelchair and has spina bifida. And he told me how he was planning to push five kilometres a day in his wheelchair for the month of May. And I'm delighted to say that Kean has raised €1,700 Euro for the Cork Spina Bifida. Well done, Kean. Congratulations to that. Thanks very much for listening today and the show was edited by Terry Brennan produced and researched by Fergal Barry Wayne Hilton was with me here on the desk back tomorrow just after 9 Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection Say big on Suncast storage sheds View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com Save big money